morning, Mosaic Community Church and friends. I'm Angel Halstead. I'm the pastor of this multiracial body that's moving ever closer to experiencing genuine multiculturalism. We choose to come together as a body because we desire to make our city of Philadelphia and the world better. Um, we strive to do this by joining with Jesus in his ongoing work so that all the peoples of the earth can be spiritually connected, can find purpose and live purpose-filled lives, and can find themselves in satisfying engagements, satisfying ways of living that honor God, that honor themselves, that honor each other, and that cares for all of creation. And so we welcome you to Mosaic Community Church this Sunday morning as we worship God together. In honor of the celebration of Black History Month, I greet you this morning with a poem by Langston Hughes entitled, I Dream a World. I've modernized a few of the words just to allow it to speak to our times and to speak to all of us. I dream a world. I dream a world where humanity, no other human, will scorn. Where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way. Where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream where black or white, whatever race you be, where will share the bounties of the earth and every person is free. Where wretchedness will hang its head and joy like a pearl attends the need of all humanity. Of such I dream a world. God bless you. Let's worship together.
Life's grows weak When for deeper faith I seek Then in thought I go to Thee Garden of Gethsemane There I walk amid the shades While the lingering twilight fades See that suffering friendless one Weeping, praying there alone For stronger faith I seek Hill of Calvary I go To thy scenes of fear and woe There behold his agony Suffered The notorious JC, his subversive sharing and welcome is the title of our sermon this morning. When I first heard folks start calling Ruth Bader Ginsburg the notorious RBG, I laughed. There was so much irony in calling this woman of such small frame and stature notorious, like she was some big gangster. But that small woman came with so much power encased in that frame. She worked tirelessly, tirelessly um, for what she believed were welcoming and more inclusive interpretations of our Constitution. She stood before the Supreme Court. She stood where giants stood, presenting her cases. Before she joined the court, she had already lived a life defying the odds. She was a married woman who wanted to study. And when she got to finally study law, she had a child and she managed to continue and finish her degree. This same woman was going up before courts filled with patriarchy, arguing, arguing for gender equality. Her fearlessness and effectiveness made her beloved by many, but it also made her hated by many, maybe even more. 
It seems the use of the word notorious in connection with her name is appropriate. She is notorious for the walls um, and ceilings of exclusion she helped not only herself but me and others break through. Her famous two words at the end of her dissenting opinion uh, during the Bush v. Gore case are testament to her tenacity and her clarity in dealing with her times. At the end of her dissent, she simply said, I dissent. Now traditionally, the words used were, I respectfully dissent. But because she found nothing respectful about the proceedings, she was not afraid to speak her mind, but understood that her written words had power. She knew how to handle the politic of the courts and the politic of life together in our nation. Her intelligence and her reasonings could not be condemned. They could be disagreed with, but they could not be found illogical. She was some lady. So the word notorious can now be equated as high praise for controversial figures who stood their ground and opened doors for others to follow. So I hope you'll understand when I use this word in association with our Savior and call him the notorious JC. Far too often he's viewed as a nice, kind, tame kind of guy, right? We make assumptions about how he would handle various situations or we ignore him altogether as if the issues of life were too much for his delicate sensibilities. He's God. We can't bother him with that. We can't bring this or that before the Lord. But my Bible says, and my experience with Jesus affirms, that I, that we, don't have a high priest who's unable to understand or empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way that we have been and are tempted, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. He didn't make choices that separated him from God or from humanity or the rest of creation because he was who he was. He remains constant, consistent in his being. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence and find grace to help us in our time of need, the next verse 16 says, The notorious JC is not, you know, some nice, gentle little dude that we can run all over. The notorious JC is not predictable, but we keep, sometimes, we keep him in a box called predictable because we want him to be what we want him to be. But JC breaks out of all of our boxes. He cannot be contained, confined, nor can he be restricted. There are sides of Jesus we don't want to touch, nor do we want to be touched by in our individual lives and in our connections in our society and the politics of life together. 
the Savior, I call JC, is the one who cried over the spiritual and moral poverty of Jerusalem. And his tears didn't make him weak. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. This is the same human being who entered the synagogue and seeing need, the man who needed his withered hand healed, got irritated at the contempt of the religious people, the church people. They had contempt for the man and for Jesus, knowing that his notorious compassion would not be constrained by their rules. He met both the need and the contempt with the words, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Mark 3, 1 through 3. For those who rejected him, they rejected the word of flesh based on their rejections of this disabled man, how he was unclean, therefore unfit to be healed on the Lord's day. And they rejected Jesus because of the way they come to view the world and the scriptures and that he didn't share that view. He had no time nor patience in his politic. I'm defining politics as how we live and negotiate life together. He had no time nor patience in his politic for delaying someone's wholeness. He told the guy, stretch out your hand. And it was healed. Stretch out your hand, Jesus said. The hand has so represents so much in literature and in the scripture. Talking about the hand could could be a, a sermon in and of itself. Stretch out your wounded hand, your hand that is unable or once unable to act with strength and power, your hand that is not able to protect. Stretch out that hand that should be able to give generosity, should be given in, in hospitality and st stability. Stretch out your hand, which is there to show greeting and friendship. And so the man stretched out his hand, which had at one time been unable to do any of those things and he was healed. His hand had strength and power. His hands were now able to protect. With his hand, he could show generosity. He could be hospitable. He was stable and he could offer stability in his greetings and generosity. With a hand no longer withered, this man could do good too. He was Jesus I'm referring to. Notorious. He is the notorious JC because he, Jesus, didn't do religion. He did good. It's odd, I know. Doing good at the time was odd. People were more concerned about doing religion, honoring the religious text and the, 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 the commentary that was given on the religious scripture. Following laws and the prescripted paths did not take people to one another. It didn't help them become closer. But because of their distortions, the scripture that was intended to bring us together actually moved us apart. And it caused people to jockey 
for position to show that they were more righteous or their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of their neighbor. Now, if you understand the word righteousness, that having right relationships with one another, you know that that argument, that thing that they were trying to do to, per, to, to project more righteousness is ridiculous because righteousness is measured in relationship. Please note that religion and doing good are not necessarily the same thing. And doing good, period, doing good to all was not the norm for them. It was doing good for their sect, doing good for their uh, ethnic community, but it was not a doing good for all. And in truth, it isn't now. Doing good is so out of style in our day that we find ourselves calling evil good. We've been watching an entire impeachment trial that's been about calling evil good. We watched uh, last spring as people cried out for rights, the right to, to, to have the police not kill bodies that occupy space like mine. And those folks and the folks that marched with people who looked like me were villainized. But I'm not here to speak of that directly. Not directly. The notorious JC goes counter to our established cultures. Counter to the norm of thought where common thought focuses on Unfortunately, self-gain, self-protection, and self-aggrandizement. It's, uh, it reveals the selfishness of our motives and our intent. He is counter to hard-hearted peoples who want their security, their status, and standing more than we want God. What do... I mean, what does it mean to want our God? Does it not mean also that we want to be like our God? Because we have to be clear, wanting to go to heaven is not the same thing as wanting a relationship with God. And what Christ was offering was relationship. He wasn't selling tickets. He wasn't selling himself or exploiting himself. What he offered us was a genuine, authentic relationship with the living God. And for as many as chose then and choose now, we can have that relationship. Jesus is notorious because he didn't do religion. He did good. He was very clear about doing good and that that good came out of his relationship with his father, with his parent. This is the Jesus who gathered cords together and made a belt and beat the snot out of all those dudes who were making his father's house a den of thieves. He lost his cool over making people pay exorbitant fees so they could have a relationship that was free with God. He hated 
stuff like that. He hated things that dishonored God and that dishonored others. You can find this in John 2, 15 through 17. Yes, I call him notorious because he knew for the righteousness and peace of the kingdom of God to break into our day-to-day -day lives required a savior filled with compassion and a savior determined to honor God, others, and the rest of creation. This is the Jesus we need to touch and the Jesus that we need to touch us. You see, with Jesus, touch always leads to transformation. That's why some want to get close enough to see him, but not close enough to be touched by him and actually changed. Just think about all the people who touched, all the people in the crowd when the woman with the issue of blood came through and how Jesus was trying to get through that crowd. And only she was transformed. It's one of the reasons I say the notorious JC did good and not religion. Some of you may find my statement that, that he did good, he didn't do religion offensive. And I'm not trying to offend you, I'm just trying to make a point. You and I have encountered many religious people during our journey with Jesus. And I can say, maybe you can too, that there's something different when you encounter a person who's been changed by Jesus and has an active connection with him. Maybe this is unfair, but we can be religious all we want to be. And we end up, all we end up doing is having the appearance of godliness without any power. And what good is that? Sometimes that's why I think my and our interpretations of the scriptures have been so off. When we're being religious, it feels like we're trying too hard. When we focus on the sharing of life with God in real partnership, then we're living more honestly, more authentically with God, with others, with ourselves with creation. I say that because in religion there is no resulting change from the religious encounter with Jesus. This is the, this may be something dangerous to say and, and I know I can easily be misunderstood so I'm asking you to, 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 to listen with different ears and, and hear my heart if my words get it wrong. When we encounter Jesus, it's like breathing fresh air. It's like receiving fresh direction. It's like being set free. Set free to dream, set free to connect, set free to explore, set free to be curious, set free to know that even if we mess up, there is room. There remains room and a place for us. There remains relationship for you and I because we're genuinely and authentically pursuing life 
with God, pursuing the be fruitful and multiply and, and replenish the earth, pursuing the care of all creation. When we encounter Jesus and he touches us and we're touched by him, we're able to, like him, do good. Because we join with God to do God's good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 But sometimes I find that, you know, far too many get close or got close. We're only near to Jesus for the bennies, like the food or the healings and going to heaven. So in having that kind of mindset or focus on that particular, those particular end games, we limit the results of the world being touched through us and our touching the world. Unfortunately, when that happens, we stay in this place of complicity that sustains the need of our siblings who are so desperate for healing and restoration because we get satisfied with just being near Jesus or the appearance of being religious. And in truth, that's part of our religious nonsense that we offer the world. And it doesn't serve the world or us in any way. Jesus was actively involved with the folks who cried out to him and for him. Those who recognized their need of him to empower their lives. And when they touched him and he them, they were changed. And this continues to be true. The story of Peter after the Lord's resurrection found in John 21 around verse 7 shows us the continual need he had and we have to be touched by Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives. You remember the story. Peter decided, I'm going to go fishing. The Lord isn't here. I can't figure out what's up. I know he said to wait, but I'm going fishing. And while they were out in the fish, fishing, the Lord appeared and he was up on the hill and he could see the lake and he told them which side of the boat to lower their nets. And when they grabbed up this big thing of fish in their nets. John leaned over to Peter and said, that's the Lord. John could recognize him. And Peter going, yeah, suddenly being refreshed and renewed, stripped off his garments and jumped into the water and swam to shore, knowing he needed that touch. He needed more than just closeness, more than Jesus telling him, you know, where to put stuff. He needed his relationship, and he was ashamed when he got to the beach. But the Lord restored Peter. <laughs> Peter's life is a master class on the need for to continually be touched by God. In Acts, after acting, you know, all, all friendly and stuff with the Gentiles, here's Peter again going funky because... Uh, his brothers of the Jewish community came around and he didn't want them to see that he had a relationship with these Gentiles. He was participating in the racial nonsense of his time. So I have to ask myself and I, I ask you when I think about Peter, 
and what I get from, the understanding I get from his life. I have to ask, how long has it, has it been since I've been touched? How long has it been since you've been touched? How long has it been since we've been changed again, anew? Jesus was notorious because he went about doing good and people were changed. Doing good and he was good. Listen, doing good and being good were his religion. What does the Lord require of you? Reads Micah 6, 8. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is Jesus. This is what he did. The good he was, the good he did. Who mourned over his city, the city of peace in Jerusalem. He cried out for the people of his city who would not know peace. A city that was moving steadily toward destruction. His love and his compassion was so deep, he offered prayers with tears before them far in advance of what would happen. Oh, sometimes I wonder what prayers are being offered by Jesus for us now. Now some would say he offers no prayers because his work is done. And that might be true. I don't know. But I hold to the verse of scripture I read to you earlier in Hebrews. We have a high priest who understands the very feelings of what we're going through. He hates seeing us in pain. He hates seeing any of his siblings mistreated. Did you hear that? He hates seeing any of his siblings, you and me, any of us mistreated, harmed, damaged. Matthew 5, 25, 40 says, Whatever you do to the least of these, my siblings, you do to me. I was reading a book. It's called The Subversive Jesus by Craig Greenfield. And in his book, he invites his readers to join him in the slums and ghettos of the world among the poorest of the poor. He traveled to all the places that come to mind when we think of the poorest of the poor. His words made me think and question many things. I thought about our church. Our church is nestled in West Philly where we are in the midst of the very poor. We are in a place where there are those whose incomes and standings are rising. You know, where, the, where young folks are coming as they are obtaining new wealth or continued wealth uh, after their college careers or where there are people who are part of the uh, Philadelphia aristocracy, you know, the, uh, the affluent who've had wealth for many years. What invitation could I issue to help us all be more like the notorious JC and do good, more good, any good? Be good. Greenfield invited um, Greenfield invited those he saw as the poorest of the poor. That was his description, not mine. He said, 
When Jesus said, invite the poor to dinner, Greenfield and his cohort invited the homeless panhandlers and they, the, those caught up in addiction and, and prostitutes, female prostitutes, to meals. They rented a home and, and used the space to offer welcome and sharing with, with those folks in the community. Greenfield and his cohorts were regularly cheated as they tried to offer hospitality and sharing, but they stayed present to those individuals they'd invited, and eventually they became friends to those who came to their table. That's a good thing. When Greenfield's cohort read, bring good news to the poor and freedom to the captives, they came up with creative flash mob events uh, to share as a way uh, to share the good news. When Jesus challenged in the scripture to love your enemies, they made homemade cookies and lemonade for the local drug dealers and invited them. Nobody came, but they did it. He said, this is Greenfield, they failed in a myriad of ways as they attempted to live out the subversive teachings of Jesus. And the result was that they were changed. Isn't it interesting? The result was they were changed. I've never read in scripture the command to change laws. Uh, should we participate in the changing of laws? Yes. I give you a clear and emphatic yes to that. But the scripture is talking about influencing so much more than the changing of our laws. We are called to touch and to be touched by the culture, by the hearts of the people, by our traditions, by our hang-ups, by our ways that separate us from one another, and through our connections, and bring the notorious JC in to those spaces so he can help change all of us. Greenfield lists that um, his starting points. Um, I could take, you know, Greenfield lists all those things with working with the homeless and the addicted and the female prostitutes as his starting points. And I could take issue with some of those things he tried and what they revealed about the way he thought about people. But what came through was his willingness to try something, to listen to Jesus and to be changed. What I consistently see in the narrative of scripture and through my sharing life with Jesus is the invitation and the encouragement to be transformed. Greenfield said, they did all these things and they were changed. They determined to do good, to do good acts as best they understood them at that time in their lives. Their desire was to be like their subversive savior and they got closer, as they got closer to the center where he was, change happened. Transformation came. I respect effort. They gave their effort in this. Wholehearted and the desire of their hearts were pure. There is a place for that and so I respect the effort of Greenfield and his cohorts I struggle when I see 
But I struggle when I see the term, the poorest of the poor, only referring to the homeless, the addicted, the, uh, the sex workers, and that those sex workers are only female. Why do I struggle? It's because when I think of the poorest of the poor, more often I think of the folks Greenfield spoke of as of the homeless, the addicted, the sex workers. I think of them as the victims of the poorest of the poor. The victims of the spiritually and more the spiritually and morally poor. And when you take the poorest of the poor on mission to minister to those who take the heat and the consequence for our collective poverty, they can be mistreated in our effort to do good. So I struggle a bit with that personally, but I still respect the effort. Yet still in my hearing of the testimony, after testimony, when people have gone on these mission trips, someone always comes back with this testimony. I was changed. They taught me. They were rich in ways I don't understand and I have never experienced before. Which is why I change up on that poorest of the poor and see the poorest of the poor as the spiritually and morally poor. Those who've been affected sometimes with the wealth of the world, with the power of the world, with the privilege, and become poor in spirit. And that's demonstrated in the way they do life or ignore the lives of others that we're supposed to share our lives with. So the poorest of the poor for me, again, are the spiritually and morally poor. And the rest live out the heat and consequence of their poverty and get blamed. The poorest of the poor, their poverty dams and drains us all. So, what would happen if we decided to go on mission to the poorest of the poor? Right here, where we are. What if we shared the good news in the light of their poverty? What if we got really honest with ourselves and discovered our own poverty and how it drains and damages us, our tight-knit community and the greater community, and decided that we needed to do good in that space? What if in our uh, stories of Jesus, we cease to align Jesus with us because you know as you read the Bible, you become the good person. I become the good person, you know, that, that's being abused. You know, what if we stop aligning ourselves in that way? And we align Jesus with the least of these. We align Jesus and start looking at Jesus joined off with those that we wouldn't consider so good. And we made them good. And we had to look at ourselves and how we dealt with those good people and how we deal with the good Jesus because he says that the way we treat them is the way we're treating him. They're the good people.
in that different? What if we encouraged each other to be touched and to touch Jesus in this way and welcome the resulting transformation? I think that's a quality thought for us. What if we saw them as good and really embraced our need for transformation right where we are, the place where we have resource, the place where we have an influence and affluence, and we welcome transformation. I'm going to leave you right there holding that thought. It's Black History Month. I have mixed feelings about this annual celebration uh, that doesn't seem to change a thing. It is important that we celebrate the contributions of, brown, of black people, of brown people, in our country and in our world. Yes, it is. And I do still. I want genuine change. So the sermon last week and the sermon this week are the best I know to do right now. And my role as pastor to respect the contributions of black and brown peoples in this country as I work for or call us to finish the work and help bring change. Jesus was notorious. The notorious JC, his doing good, had a high price. It cost his life. I can still tell you that the price is the same. It costs the lives we know for the life we've yet to discover. In the next week, we'll begin the Lenten, Lent season, the Lenten season. It's a time to take a pause, a time out, a time to reflect on the life and ministry of Jesus as we look at our own lives. To some, it represents the 40 days of, that Jesus spent in the desert after his baptism before he started his formal ministry. Lent is often marked by fasting, just like Jesus did in those 40 days. But this year, I'd like us to frame our time of reflection and preparation on the notorious JC who did good. I'd like us to reflect on how we can touch and be touched by Jesus daily. How we can do good by extending the touch, that same touch he gives us, to the poorest of the poor in the spaces we find ourselves physically and virtually. And how our multiracial church, excuse me, how our multiracial church can actively grow toward multi multiculturalism through engaging with one another in our affinity groups and our large group gathering that will result from our exploration and discussions about the book Begin Again by Eddie Glaude. Reading and engaging with this book is our fast for this Lent season. We, those of us who are of the majority culture, are fasting the right to turn aside from the issues of racism within us and without in our communities, in our relationships with family and friends. We're fasting our right to not notice 
We're fasting our right not to say things. We're fasting our right not to learn, not to grow, not to develop. We fast from that. And those of us who are people of color turn aside from our habit, the ways we've learned to assimilate, to bearing the impact of racism that we use to survive every day. We turn away from that. God help us to discover more about who we are when we are at peace. I'm writing a manual for us for this season and I will talk about why affinity groups are important. Why, or I will put together articles that help explain that. Why it's important. And so by doing this for the first time for me as your pastor, it is our intentional engagement on the subject of anti-racism as a community. We've had sermons and things, but this is our full church engagement, as full as whoever shows up, and I pray you do. Because I focused uh, so much on my mom while I was away, as I should, I'm a little behind, so I'm catching up. But know that that manual is coming out next week. Um, and you'll be able to use it to guide through Outlet. So this is an invitation, another invitation for you to participate. If you don't have Begin Again, please just get a word to admin at mosaicphiladelphia.org and we will help you get a copy. Um, and with regards to affinity groups, let me say this. And if you allow for an analogy, we may be in different affinity groups or we may be located at different places in our neighborhood, talking and communing together, but let's be clear, it's still the same neighborhood. And the work we're doing is for the improvement of all the people, all the peoples in our neighborhood so that we can live spiritually connected, purpose-filled, and satisfying lives, not just individually, but together. Can I get an amen on that? My hope is that this will nourish our souls, and I believe it will, because God looks at the intent of our hearts, and even when we fumble and mess up, God comes through, and so we need him for that. So, I want you to know that as everyone's pastor, I'm available to talk. But I will not do your work for you. Through this process, I have to do my own work. But that doesn't mean I'll neglect leading or I'll neglect you or listening. I can listen because I'm your pastor. Um, so, but I want us to take on the challenge and not look for any other group or have an expectation. You know, black people, there's an expectation sometimes with black people to do the work, the heavy lifting for the white community. We can't do that if we're gonna have genuine multiculturalism. We all have to do our own work, which is another reason for affinity groups. But we'll get into that. So, I'm excited about this. I am so thankful that you want to participate. There are people outside of our community of, of normal family and uh, members and friends who want to join us. You are welcome. Come on. Come on in. And there's some freedom 
that that folks who are not emotionally connected to us can have and I suspect they'll lead us in some places or they'll help us get to some places of honesty that we might not normally go to. So come on in. Um, respect our community. Always respect our people. In the package and in our first section we'll talk about uh, our rules of engagement for our time together as a full community and in our affinity groups. So because it's going to be safe space. Our church is safe space for all. And when we mess up, we try to correct quickly so our church remains a safe space even if it's a new community of people. So that's what we endeavor to do. Alright. So please, um, allow me to pray. Lord, thanks for letting uh, me and us call you the Notorious JC. Thank you for being more than just an example to us. You are, you and your authentic self, you're good and you do good. And you're encouraging us to do the same. Lord, touch us so we can be just like you. Touch us and allow us to join with you in weeping over our nation and the ugliness of white supremacy and racism. Lord, help us, touch us, and, and help us to stand against the foolish requirements we place on people before they can offer you their lives. We repent as people, as your people, Father, for the pressure we put on the other members of society um, to become like the majority culture. And for those of us in, in assimilation or other ways who participate in that because of internalized racism, we ask your forgiveness and that you would liberate us from that lifestyle. Lord, let us touch you and stretch out the hands that you've healed that are now strong and powerful and that offer generosity and hospitality and friendship to our siblings just like you do. Respecting one another as equals in the body and as equals in the kingdom of God that is ever breaking in. Lord, let us touch you and participate in the healing of the wearied and the withered souls. Lord, let us touch and know that you are real, that you invite us to the reality of your kingdom on earth. Lord, we bless you. We magnify your name because you are good, because you are kind. But we thank you that you're not tame or predictable and you allow us to join in the adventure of life with freedom and curiosity. Thank you for the shackles that have been taken off of us. We need you, and so we welcome you to our individual and our collective life. Help us. We invite you to touch us and ask us, ask you, Lord, to let us touch you and see, Lord, that you are real. In Jesus' name, amen.
Our group study for Eddie S. Glaud Jr.'s Begin Again will start on Tuesday, February 23rd on Zoom. Please see this slide for the schedule of events, and don't forget to pre-register. You'll be able to find that in next week's newsletter and on Facebook. <music>